It is such an honor to be here with all of you today, and it's incredible the kind of insights on leadership and culture organization that we are able to gather together from some of the greatest minds in the world. And what I want to focus on is something a little bit different, because I'm convinced that that the greatest battles we ever fight are the ones within us, the ones that rage within our souls. And, and if we can figure out how to conquer the darkness inside of us, we can keep moving our lives forward into the light. When we try to learn principles around leadership or culture or organizational science, and it, it can seem so objective. And yet I think the reality is that most of us are here not only to try to figure out how to run better organizations or to lead greater congregations. I I think that inside of us, we're all desperately afraid that there is greatness inside of us that will never be actualized. That there's something inside of us that we can't seem to access. I think all of us have this sense that we might have our final cause of death being drowning in mediocrity. When my son was around 15 years old, Aaron, he's here with us today, he asked me if he could meet my stepdad, Bill McManus. And and I, I don't know if you notice this, but my last name is McManus, but I am not Irish. I am as Spanish as, as they come. And, and yet my, my, my stepdad came here from Chicago and, and was involved in creative underground economies and <laughs> had to run from his life in Chicago to Miami, met my mom, who's from El Salvador, and Three weeks later, they were married. She needed what she perceived to be a father for her two boys in El Salvador, and he needed a new family with a new identity, and so they were able to help each other right away. (laughs) He took us to a police station, convinced the police we'd been robbed, and I walked out Irish that day. And so a huge part of my own personal journey has been the search for identity, never knowing who I am. Even my first name isn't mine, Irwin. That's not a very Spanish name either. Because I went to El Salvador to my grandfather and I said I need a good American name and he didn't know a good American name but he wasn't going to tell me he didn't know. So he starts pretending he knows. He goes, pues un nombre. Tiene que ser un nombre de una persona persona importante, una persona que es genio. And my grandfather heard going on. I'm going, this name needs to be the name of someone who's a genius, someone who's significant, someone who's a leader. I'm only eight, nine years old. I don't need a great name. I just want a good name that doesn't get me beat up in third grade. <laughs> and so my grandfather had been studying World War II German history, so he named me after Erwin Rommel, Hitler's general over <laughs> North Africa. So I spent my life being named after a Nazi Irishman, and, and I can tell you a huge part of my own internal journey has been, who am I? Will my life ever amount to anything? Coming from another country, learning a different language, never having known my father, having what I would consider maybe a tough start in life. I think I'm like so many of you, feeling as if there's more inside of you than you can actually access. So when Aaron was 15 years old, he said, I want to meet the, the man who gave you your name. So we flew across the country. I tracked him down. I hadn't talked to him in 15 years. And I took my son to meet Bill McManus, and in the first conversation they had, in the last conversation they had together, my, my, my stepdad said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I don't know what your dad has told you, but he was just average. And then he reinforced it. His brother was exceptional, but he was just average. 
I don't know what he told you, but he was just average. And those words kept echoing inside of my soul. And I remember just reinforcing his statement. I said, what else would I tell him, Dad, except that I was just average? And when I left that day, I had this haunting, painful struggle within me. Not because he said I was just average. And by the way, that was not easy to realize that the one thing my stepdad wanted to tell my son, the one thing he wanted to pass on to the next generation is that his father was just average. But what really haunted me was that he was, he was exaggerating. I was never average. I was always below average. If I had been average, I would have been overachieving. And I realized when I was leaving that place that if I didn't make different kinds of decisions in my life, that my life story would be he was just average. See, I think that is something that haunts us all. This terrifying realization that we may never live up to everything that's inside of us. And if you're a person of faith, you know that you've been created by a God who gives you intention and purpose and significance and that your life is supposed to matter. So I began writing this book called The Last Arrow. Save nothing for the next life. Because I began to discover over years and years of life that that I've known too many people with so much potential, so much capacity. They looked as if they were going to accomplish so many great things and their lives never lived up to what everyone else saw in them. They began to realize that life isn't really about talent or intelligence or gifting or skills or so much more. That so many of us live our lives holding on to the status quo because that's where we're best accepted. And we're terrified of breaking away from the pack and becoming uniquely the person God created us to be. Because when you become who God created you to be, you will be like no one else in the world. And no one will be able to understand you or explain you. And sometimes they will not be able to accept you. And so I think we're in danger sometimes. I think we're in danger of trying to learn how to fit, how to conform, how to belong. What we need to do is ask the question, how can I become the person I was created to be? How do I actualize the full capacity, the full potential inside of me? How do I use my life to disrupt the status quo? How do I break out of the momentum of mediocrity and become something that compels others to become more themselves? So... I found this story. It's in 2 Kings. It's a conversation between a prophet and a king, Elisha and Jehoash. It's it's one of those peculiar stories that really doesn't make any sense. And I I didn't grow up with faith. I I never went to church. I didn't grow up reading a Bible. So when I read these stories, sometimes they just really confuse me. And this is a story where King Jehoash calls for Elisha because he's, he's terrified because an enemy army is coming to defeat him. And he knows that the only potential for victory is if he can bring Elisha to his side. Because Elisha knew God, but King Jehoash knew somebody who knew God, but he did not know God. And he said, there's an army coming to destroy us, and Elisha is about to die. But the king's not worried about that. He's just worried that he's going to lose the one person he has who can connect him to the creator of the universe. And Elisha says to him, take the bow and arrow and shoot it through the window. And it says that Elisha put his hands on the king's hands and he shot the arrow through the window. This beautiful metaphor that if you'll put your life in God's hands, he will send it so much further than you could ever alone. And then he says to the king, God is going to give you a complete victory today. 
Man, I, I would love to step into that where I could wake up every morning and knowing that, that I had the promise of overcoming, that I had the promise of a complete victory. Wouldn't it be amazing whatever you're facing in your company or in your life, in your family, whether it's in your career or your church, to know that you're going to overcome whatever you're facing? And, and then he says, take the arrow and strike. And, and the king takes the arrow in his hand and he strikes and he strikes once and twice and a third time. I think this is epic. This is amazing. And he strikes three times, which seems to me to be a good number. And then it says Elisha became angry. It doesn't give us any context for his anger. It says Elisha became angry. He says, why did you stop striking? Why didn't you strike the arrow five or six times? If you had kept striking, God would have given you the complete victory. But now you're only going to get a partial victory. Like, this is so unfair. This is the way God seems to operate in life. He doesn't give us the details. Then he gets mad when we get it wrong. I mean, if this was so important, why didn't Elisha said, I, I think you should strike a lot. Like five or six times. He doesn't tell him anything. And I'm, going, I'm reading this going, God, this is, this is how I feel about life. I strike, I strike, I strike, I stop, you get mad. You never told me to keep going. And then it hit me. I'm amazed how many people need permission to get started. But almost no one needs permission to quit. This king stopped after striking three times. Not because he was instructed to stop, but simply because it was enough. And I started wondering how many of us have confused those moments in our life where we thought we failed, but actually what we did is we quit. I wonder how many of us have have settled for a life that's so much less than the life we're supposed to live. Not because we were being held back, but because we never had enough confidence or faith or belief in what we were created to do, and so we never pushed ourselves to the more. I wonder how many of us are saving our best for the next life when really all we have is this life to give ourselves completely to. So as I was writing this book, I was in the middle of the manuscript, finishing all my editing, and, and in the middle of it, I was trying to get life insurance. Now, for about five, six, seven years, I had been trying to get life insurance. I could never qualify for life insurance. It was the strangest thing. I felt healthy. I felt like I was doing great. But I couldn't pass the test. But then the doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong with me. There's nothing more frustrating than being told, you're not okay, but we can't find anything wrong with you. And so I couldn't qualify for life insurance. I I ran a company uh, that was involved in the film industry and the fashion industry and the tech industry. And my business partner wanted to have a key man policy to protect the company. And I couldn't be insured. And I thought, this is the oddest thing because it's not really life insurance. It's death insurance. So for seven years, I couldn't be insured. And so we thought, let's try to get life insurance again. So I went through all these tests again, and, and I kept failing the test. I kept saying, look, there's nothing wrong with me. I've, just, I've never been good at tests. <laughs> but we went through some further processes, and it was Christmas. I think around December 15th or so, my wife Kim and I went to this doctor on this just really routine exam, just I was just waiting to hear this this declaration of a clean bill of health. And we had our kids waiting for us to enjoy and celebrate that I could finally be insured. And this doctor looked across the table and he said to me, you have cancer. And when he said those words, they they felt so surreal because they were unexpected. In fact, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It was as if he was telling someone else that I had cancer until I looked at my wife, Kim, and I could just see the devastation in her eyes. 
And after we had to tell Aaron and Mariah that I had cancer, and I could see how they were just shaken up and devastated by the news. And as we were processing that, we were just two weeks away from Christmas. And, and it was a really difficult time. And then I found out that I had cancer for so long that my cancer was in advanced stages. And as my surgeon kept telling me, I had high volume cancer. And so it put me at high risk. And I didn't know if the last error would be the last book I would ever write. I thought, what a strange metaphor for life. That that would be my last arrow. Three weeks later, one of the greatest surgeons in the world, Dr. Khalili, who invented the robot called Da Vinci that actually performs a surgery, became my surgeon. And the surgery was supposed to take two hours, and it took six and a half hours because they found so much more cancer than they expected, and it was so much more difficult than they thought. Six and a half hours later, all the rooms were taken up in the hospital with the cancer patients, once so they had to move me to a different section. And, and I remember as I was processing that, we, we told our community of faith called Mosaic in L.A., and, and I told them that I had cancer, and I didn't know what the future looked like, and I knew I needed to finish this book. And so the night they told me I had cancer, I went home, everybody went to sleep, I opened up the manuscript to the bottom of page 93, the second to the last sentence, and I read a sentence I'd written a year before that I did not remember. And this is what the sentence said. So I need to tell you, before you hear it from anyone else, that I'm dying. I wrote those words one year before the day they told me I had cancer. And yet on that night, that happened to be the first sentence I read in my manuscript. It was so surreal to actually read something I wrote for myself a year ahead of time. It was as if it was in a time capsule waiting for me to deal with the reality of this truth. But the most significant thing I wrote in the book is not that sentence. It may be the very next sentence. Right after I wrote, so I need to tell you before you hear from someone else that I'm dying, I wrote these words, but so are you. And that's the reality. See, the problem is that most of us live our lives as if we're not dying. Most of us act as if we're going to live forever. Most of us act as if this day doesn't have infinite value. And in case you were unaware, I need to tell you that you're dying. And if you didn't know that, I'm sorry to ruin your day. But someone needs to tell you that you don't get this day back. You don't get this opportunity back. This is a moment you need to treat as sacred and essential. You need to leave each day as if it's the last day of your life. And, and then I gave myself permission. I'm going to feel whatever I should feel. I mean, I don't know what a person with cancer feels. I've never had cancer before. So if I feel afraid, I'm going to feel afraid. If I feel angry, I'm going to be angry. If I feel bitter, I'm going to be bitter. Whatever I feel, I'm just going to feel. I'm not going to pretend. I'm just going to let it be what it is. And I can tell you the strangest thing happened. I never felt bitter. I, I, I didn't know how I could be bitter when I've lived such a beautiful life. How could I be bitter against God or against life? Because it was, it's been such an amazing journey. And I never felt angry because I felt like life has been so disproportionately good to me. That I've experienced what others could only dream of. So how can I be angry? But what really surprised me the most was I never felt afraid. I mean, I was ready to feel afraid. And maybe I'll feel afraid tomorrow. But I can tell you, up to this moment, I've never felt afraid. And I started processing that. What's, what's wrong with me? Am I a sociopath? What, what, what's going on? Why, why, why am I not afraid? And then I remembered when I was new in my faith journey. When I, when I was encountered by the person of Jesus, and I, I didn't know how this whole faith thing worked out. 
And I wanted to see if what was written in the scriptures actually changed people's lives. So I decided to spend my life working in the middle of extreme poverty, in the middle of drug cartels, the middle of crime and violence. And the first time I drove to what is at that time the highest crime rate, murder rate in the United States, I was driving Kim's little yellow Pinto. Now, if you want to be attacked in the ghetto, drive a yellow Pinto. And, uh, and I'm in the middle of, of the street. My heart's pounding. I'm terrified. And I realized, how am I going to get out of the car when I'm so afraid? As I just stopped the car in the middle of the street, I didn't even pull over. I just started saying, God, I need you to help me. I'm afraid. And I kept waiting for for some some point of reference, some scripture that I'd memorize that would comfort me, like, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, or or, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, or fear not for I am with you, says the Lord. So many great verses that could be in Gladiator or Braveheart. But none of those verses came. The one verse that came was one I never memorized, I never wanted to memorize, and I still don't want to memorize it. But it came crashing into my head. Erwin, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That was not encouraging. <laughs> but when I heard those words seeping into my soul, it was as if God was speaking to me, telling me, if you'll just die right now, I will take you where only dead men can go. And what happened in my life when I faced cancer was that I had dealt with death so many decades before that as they would say in the fashion industry, death was so last year. (laughs) And there's some of you here, death is still in front of you. So you're living your life in fear. But I want you to know, That your freedom is on the other side of your fears. That everything you long for, everything you hope for, all those dreams and desires and longings that have been placed there even by God will only be accessed if you can step through your fears to your freedom. And I'll tell you, in that moment, I had a little personal funeral. In that moment, I died and I said, God, I just want to live a life that's absolutely free from the fear of death. Because death has a lot of companions. When you're afraid of death, you become afraid of failure. You become afraid of rejection. You become afraid of everything. You're afraid of the uncertainty of the future. You're afraid of the instability of the world around you. And I know too many people who say they have faith, but they're just absolutely paralyzed by fear. Death is not supposed to be in front of you. Death is supposed to be behind you. See, when you enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe, he puts death behind you. All you have in front of you is life. Now, I know I'm supposed to be talking about leadership principles that that translate into every environment, whether it's secular or spiritual, but I want you to know something. Before you're ever a CEO or before you're ever the president of a company or before you're ever a general manager or before you're ever a pastor, you're a human. And if you don't deal with the paralyzing power of fear in your life, you will never live the life you're created to live. Your freedom is on the other side of your fear. So stop running away from what you're afraid of. Lean into it and watch how you'll crash right through it. I had people actually wonder if I would be here today. Because you see, I think so many of us only have the structure to lead when the world is at peace and when life is easy. 
But leadership is not about living within the confines of your fear. It's about facing those and going through them. I love what Dick DeVos said. Leaders don't run from the fire. They run into the fire. Your freedom is on the other side of your fears. But I want you to know that your greatness is on the other side of your pain. I can tell you, and I stand before you in this moment, that fear has no power over my life. And it's not that I'm not afraid. I was, I mean, I had the genetic makeup of a coward. (laughs) But what you fear has mastery over your life. If you're afraid of heights, you stay low. If you're afraid of crowds, you stay alone. What you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. And that's the beautiful thing. See, it's only in relationship to God where the scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. See, when God is the only one that you live in relationship to in fear, it is only God who destroys that fear and sets you free with his love. Every other master that controls you by fear is a cruel master and will steal your life away. But I think a lot of us don't understand that our greatness is on the other side of our pain. We live in a time that I think can be best described by a a mythology of greatness because we get to see people operate at the highest level. Greatness looks easy. I mean, after all, in Chicago, you had Michael Jordan. And you may, he made basketball look easy. Then you had Derrick Rose. He steps on the scene right away, becomes MVP, made basketball look easy. You had Gail Sayers and Walter Payton. They made football look easy. You live in the epicenter of a mythology of greatness because we have a generation that sees people at their highest level but doesn't see behind the scenes of the incredible sacrifice and determination and discipline and pain required to achieve that level of greatness. See, I I think a lot of us think that our pain is the boundary of our limitation. But your pain is not the boundary of your limitation. Your pain is the boundary of your greatness. It's where greatness begins. So after six and a half hours of surgery, they put me in this room. It was 9 p.m. at night. And it was midnight. And I woke up three hours later. And my wife, Kim, was sitting next to me. She was so exhausted. And I... I woke her up and I said, honey, wake up. And she got really afraid. She thought I was hurt. Something was wrong. I had six holes in my stomach where the computer, where the robot went inside of my body and cut me open. And, and she goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk. She goes, no, no, you're not. I said, no, no, I, I am. She goes, you're not getting up. And I said, no, I, I'm getting up. I'm just waking you up so you can know. And, and, and <laughs> so she calls the nurse to gang up on me. The nurse comes in before I could say anything, and I'm the patient. She goes, he wants to get up and walk. Tell him he cannot get up and walk. And the nurse said, you cannot get up and walk. I said, no, I'm going to get up and walk. She goes, you, sir, you cannot get up and walk. And I said, look, can I do any more damage to me? No. I said, then I'm going to get up and walk. She goes, you should not get up and walk. But if you're going to get up and walk, let me give you painkillers. And I said, No. I don't want any painkillers. 
Because this is the whole point. See, if I can stand in this pain, I can face whatever pain is ahead of me. And so I threw my legs off that really high hospital bed and I put the weight on my arms which constricted my core and there was so much pain. And then I put my feet on the ground and I, I wish I could tell you that, that there was a miracle and I felt no pain. But it wasn't like that. Because if I'm going to measure the reality and presence of God by the amount of pain I felt in that moment, I would be screaming, there is no God. And I stood in that moment and the pain was so intense and that first step hurt so much. And that second step hurt more. I took three and four steps and they thought I was going to walk to the bathroom, but there was no point to go to the bathroom because I had a catheter in my body. And if you don't know what a catheter is, it's a medical term for male humiliation. And when they thought I was going to take a left to the bathroom, I took a right and walked out the hospital door and walked down the hall. And it hurt so much. You see, I think one of the things that we need to learn more of is how to walk in our pain. See, when you, when you don't grow up with an easy life, when you grow up facing challenge after challenge, when you end up in a psychiatric chair when you're 12 years old, when you end up in a hospital because they can't find out what's wrong with you, when you live with nightmares every single night for day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year as a kid, when you don't know who you are or who you belong to, when you have so much pain in your life, you don't know if you can get up one more day, you learn how to walk in your pain. And three hours later, I got up again, and I walked further around the hospital. And then at the, the, the nursing shift around 6, 7 in the morning, Kim went to get some coffee, and, and uh, I saw the nurse's shift. So I got up, I took a shower, I got myself dressed, and buzzed them and said, I'm ready to go home. My wife's like, why are you doing this? I said, I, 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 this is what I have to do. And then I, I called the, the, the surgeon, and I said, how long do I have to have the catheter in? He said, a month. And I said, that's not going to happen. And uh, I, I said, we're going to shoot for a week. And, and when, I, when I got home, my wife had set up our bedroom on the second floor with the refrigerator and this electronic chair that would lay me down and sit me up as if I were dying. It was as if I were going to live in that room for the rest of my life. And so when she left the house, I called the company and set the chair back. And, and I, I thought, I got to get out of this house. So on my first day, I, I snuck out of the house and went walking down Hollywood. I live in Hollywood. And I had this catheter. I was walking with this catheter. And... Uh, <laughs> Because Hollywood's full of crazy people anyways. I'm like, this is just new fashion, guys. This is just the new thing. And I even went to an open house with my catheter and checked out a new home. and Got that catheter out after a week, and I called my surgeon, Dr. Khalili, and I said, what's the world's record for how fast a person can play basketball after having the surgery? He said, well, there really is no world's record for that. And then it's mine. So three months of the day after having that surgery, I went upstairs where Kim was working and I packed up my basketball gear and I dropped it down the stairs so she couldn't see it. And I said, honey, I'm house sick and uh, I got to get out. I'm just, I got to get out and got to hang with the guys a little bit. She goes, where are you going? You know, I just, it's just with the guys. And she goes, what are you going to go do? I said, you know, what guys do. And, uh, and she said something like, don't do something stupid. I don't know why she bothers with things like that. And uh, 
I got in the car and I rented a basketball gym and we played two hours of basketball three months after having six hours of surgery. And yeah, the holes were bleeding. And, but my, but my three-point shot was dropping everywhere. And uh, so I knew that God was with me. And, uh, and I started getting emails from around the world. See, because I have this friend who, when I met him, was an atheist. And every other word was F you. And he grew up in church. And he was once married to um, a pastor's daughter. But she was unfaithful to him in the first year of their marriage. And he decided there was no God and there was no love. And we developed this, this friendship and he started coming across the world to LA to hang out with us. And, and when he found out I had cancer, he sent me an email, it was really brief, it just said F cancer. It was not abbreviated. And, uh, <laughs> but then he sent me a follow-up email that said, this might be the one thing that drives me to pray. See, and I, I knew in that moment that so many people have cancer. It's, it's a story many of us share together, but my cancer wasn't about me. It wasn't for me. My recovery wasn't for me because, see, I'm not afraid of death because I'm already alive. See, my friends who are atheists say, Erwin, where is there any proof of life after death? I go, I understand why you're asking that question because, you see, the only proof of life after death is life before death. And so if you're not alive before death, of course you're going to be afraid of death because all you know is death. But you see, I have absolute confidence in life after death because I've already experienced and have come to know life before death. See, and I knew that my friends who were atheists and agnostics and Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and all those, they were, they were a part of my story. And I wanted to know that pain is not the limitation of our life. That there's more in us than we could ever imagine. I wanted those people in our own community who are so afraid to get up and live life again. Those whose dreams had, had crashed. Those who had just absolutely been crushed by the rubble of failure. I wanted them to know that their pain was not the limits of their life and that there's greatness inside of every single person. But you have to be willing to go through the pain to step into your greatness. And I know there are many of you going through pain right now. And for many people, pain will define them. But when you live a life of faith, when you connect to the God who created you, when you understand that his son Jesus stepped into human history, walked among us, lived a beautiful and perfect life, that God took on flesh and blood, and then he was crucified in the most anguishing and humiliating of processes, beaten, torn to shreds, mocked, humiliated, that if Jesus communicates anything to all of us, is that pain is not the end of the story. Because even for Jesus, his greatness was on the other side of his pain. And I don't think God came into human history to give you and me a way out of pain. He came to give us a way through the pain. And I'm convinced there's greatness inside of you. If you'll just step into it and walk in that pain and trust that God has something extraordinary on the other side of your wounds and your scars and your disappointments. But you also see that that not only is 
your freedom on the other side of your fears and your greatness is on the other side of your pain, but your future is on the other side of your failures. See, I I think so many of us have this perception that failure is, is the dead end of who we are. And I understand why. Have you ever noticed that people always want to define you by your worst moments? They, they, they take your worst moment and then they say, that's who you are. But I want you to know something. God does not define you by your worst moments. God defines you by his best moments. God does not define you by your worst moments. He defines you by your best moments. He sees in you a greatness that you cannot see in yourself. He sees in you a future that you can't even imagine. But you have to realize that failure is not the end of the story. I remember years ago, we started a, a company, McManus Studios, for film and fashion. And I talked to this megachurch pastor who has been renowned around the world. And he said, what are you doing, McManus? And I told him what we were doing. And he said, well, you better not fail. I said, well, I think this is really important to do anyway. He goes, well, it's only important if you don't fail. And I, I let that story go into my heart. You better not fail. And I flew to New York, and I met with this artist, Maku Fujimura. And he goes, what are you doing now? I said, you know, we're, we're, we're in the world of film and, and, and fashion and, and art and storytelling. And I said, but I'll probably fail. I, I own the story I was given. And when I said, but I'll probably fail, he said, it's impossible for you to fail. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, you already have a story worth telling. How your company goes is incidental to the story your life is telling the world. See, when you're living in a story bigger than your own, failure just enhances the story. It just makes the plot more exciting. (laughs) See, if you're here in a failure, you should be so honored. Plot, Plot twist. God is ready to do something so extraordinary with my life that he wants everyone to be overwhelmed by the beauty of what he does. And I remember one day in the middle of my business environment, I got a ton of emails and my former business partner decided to um, take the millions of dollars that we had in our company. I lost everything. I watched five, six million dollars disappear. And one day I had to get on a plane, fly across the country and tell my wife, Kim, honey, I lost everything. I'll never forget what Kim said to me without hesitating. When I said, honey, I lost everything, she looked at me and said, I thought I was your everything. Who says that? (laughs) And then I I didn't know how to respond, and I'm not as deep as she is. And and I just said, well, I I, I lost my other everything. And uh, (laughs) the one that helps finance my everything. And... uh, (laughs) I couldn't eat for 30 days. I couldn't hold food down. I was in a fetal position, sometimes physically and sometimes emotionally. And we had to take a million dollar loan on our house just to pay off all the projects they left undone. I kept waiting for a miracle. I kept waiting for a miracle. I kept waiting for a miracle. I kept going, God, could you just do something? I tried to have enough faith. And one day it was so clear to me. I wanted God to meet me in my faith, but he met me in my faithfulness. And I want you to know something beautiful. In the middle of all that collapse, in the middle of everything falling apart, we had a son named Aaron sitting right over here. And he'd been so hurt by some of the meanness and the vitriol inside of the Christian faith that he ran hard and fast away from God. He didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. He didn't want to have to do with anything with church. He didn't want to have to do anything with with faith. 
So he was in New York working for St. Laurent. And in the middle of all this, God got a hold of his life and he sent me a text that said, Dad, if we make bags and we make films, but don't take Jesus to the world, we've accomplished nothing. And, and when I read that, I thought, who stole my son's phone? <laughs> and then he flew home and he said, hey, Dad, I know that you, um, you dropped out of like, your, your space. You stopped writing books. You stopped speaking at Christian events. You, you left this public space of Christian ministry for me. He says, Dad, I know you did it for me. I know you gave it all up for me. And he, we've never talked about it. And he said, I just want to thank you. He goes, but you've been operating on 60%, and it's time for you, Dad, to give 100%. Who does he think he is telling me I've been operating on 60%? (laughs) Then he sends me an email later saying, I was exaggerating, it's closer to 30%. (laughs) And I can tell you this. I'm not standing in front of you as a person who has success after success after success. I'm standing in front of you as a person who's known failure after failure after failure. I've known heartbreak, I've known betrayal, I've known disappointment. I've had moments where I've wept so hard I thought I would drown in my own sorrow. I've had moments where I've said to God, I don't know if I can take one more step, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I remember sitting on a vacation telling my wife, I I don't know, I think I'm done. See, I I think we've got to stop pretending that this life is easy and that somehow faith makes it easier. Your faith doesn't make life easier. Your faith makes you stronger. And I know that in this context, I'm talking as a person of faith, but I want to tell you something. I don't have any other way to speak because 40 years ago, I had a life-changing encounter with the creator of the universe. I never thought it was possible. I never thought it was accessible. But I came to know that God had stepped into human history in the person of Jesus. And people would ask me, what, what motivated you to give your life to Jesus? Man, I didn't care about heaven. I thought people talking about heaven were just way too weird. I didn't care about hell. I thought those people were so judgmental. I was terrified that I would live and die and never do anything meaningful with my life. I was terrified that my stepdad was right, that I was nothing but average. I was terrified that I would just drown in my own mediocrity. And like that king, I would just take the arrow and strike and strike and strike and then quit and never live the life I was created to live. But I want you to know something. There's a life that's waiting for you. And your faith is not a way out of your courage. It is not a way around of your, uh, of your sacrifice. Your faith is the strength and the fuel to step into your pain and into your fear and into your failures. So take the arrow and strike and strike and strike and strike and strike. And when you take your last breath, let your quiver be empty and let your last arrow be in your hand. God bless you.